0: Welcome to Coffee and Change, I'm Bill Kirst. As a business professional, a US veteran, a lifelong learner, and an active listener, I help others navigate, understand, and adapt to our ever-changing workplace and world. As a third culture kid, I call many places home. Presently, Seattle is where I explore my creativity through the power of words and images. In this podcast, we journey with our guests Gaining knowledge and inspiration from their stories. One of the most enjoyable and rewarding aspects of hosting and running a podcast is when a guest you have just interviewed feels seen, heard, and believed. And it is from that place of belonging that he or she so enthusiastically says, Oh, you know who you have to have on your show? And another bridge is built to another human I wouldn't have met otherwise. Well, this past week, I got to meet one of those incredible humans. Some of you may remember episode 98 featuring David Watson, who spoke into existence his vision of the Unvoiced Man. And I look forward to continuing to support the evolution of that dream for David and others. But for now, I get to bring to you the listeners, the incredible stories of the human that David brought to me. See, right after we finished recording that episode on Chrissy Field in San Francisco, David grabbed me by the shoulders and with such joy in his eyes proclaimed, you have to interview Tim Seelig for your podcast. And boy was David right. This is one of those stories I didn't know I needed to hear to heal. Tim Selig is the former director of the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus and has lived and witnessed historic change in his personal and professional life. Tim is a father, grandfather, author, a speaker, a performer, a conductor, a mentor, a coach, and most importantly, a friend and lifesaver to a great many humans on this earth. Tim even won an Emmy for Best Documentary titled After Goodbye, An AIDS Story. This hour flew by and it was so what my heart and soul needed. It was a true honor to spend time in the presence of a modern elder and a mystic who reminds us of the power of creativity and connection and how it saves lives. Thank you, Tim, for joining the show and thank you, David, for the connection. And to all my listeners, enjoy this incredible conversation. We'll just jump right in, and I would love for you to introduce yourself um, to the listeners and talk a little bit about um, who you are now, and then we'll talk about some of the amazing things you've done, uh, which led us to meet today.
1: Good morning. I am so happy to be with you. I have listened to your podcasts and love what you're doing. I, I enjoyed your preview of this season and i'm so honored to appear on it Uh, i of course asked you know why me which of course everybody thinks why me Uh, and everybody's everybody has a story or 10. i have a hundred so um yeah it's been an amazing life that uh, i could have never imagined of course as a as a little boy growing up in texas with good southern southern baptist parents uh, this is not the life that they had dreamed for me or one that i think anybody could have dreamed and and you know it has been a dream it's been amazing so i i act like i'm you know on my deathbed looking back writing my own obituary but um The interesting thing is I have been, and I'm using air quotes, uh, retired for a year after 35 years of conducting LGBTQ choruses all over the country. And that was something that as a little Southern Baptist boy in Fort Worth, Texas, uh, didn't think that was going to happen down the road. In fact, of course, you know we don't think about it but when i was growing up as a little southern baptist boy in texas there was no such thing as a gay chorus and um we didn't even use the word gay so (laughs) not only did they not dream it there was no such thing and those um years were so rich i entered uh, i came out at the age of 35 which i'm sure we'll get into a little more i came out uh, from the southern baptist world with my lovely wife and two children and came just flinging out of the closet didn't know what i was going to do and the, took over uh, a small gay men's chorus in dallas texas and the first rehearsal came face to face with aids full-blown aids from singers and um, that was 1987. so looking back over the 35 years that you know i conducted A gay men's chorus through two pandemics, not one, but two. And as uh, all of your listeners who um, may be um, LGBTQ um, remember the the older ones, those of us who've been around for a while, the PTSD of COVID as it relates to the AIDS pandemic. And um, yeah, doing that, doing two of those was also more than anybody bargained for.
0: Yeah, I mean, I appreciate you starting us there because one of the things I saw that you had posted was a picture or a video that that showcased the number of chorus members, and a number of them were all in the same color shirt, and there were just three, I believe, that were in a white shirt. Can you talk about what that juxtaposition was and how that played out on stage and the message it shared with people?
1: The, that first one, I believe, was taken, that first photo was taken in 1991, and the chorus had lost about 100 members, and they had 103 members singing in the chorus. So they actually were wearing uh, tuxedos. They turned backwards. So 100 of them turned backwards, and three were left with their white shirts facing forward. And what it depicted was that 100 singers had died and the number facing here are those who had survived. Of course, there were 100 living singers in the chorus. So um, 30 years later, maybe in uh, in 2019, we reenacted that. And by this time, the chorus had 300 singers in the chorus and so we reenacted it and again there were three people turned forward uh maybe four because we the, the chorus had by that time lost uh, almost 300 singers to HIV and AIDS so yeah 30 years later and of course you know I've also lived I am HIV positive and I say that at every turn because uh, it's so important that people still hear the fact that there are people out here still living with hiv and because we we look healthy now you can't tell we don't have the telltale signs that we had through the 80s and the 90s no one would know and so uh, we are we are the the disappearing uh, many not few but many who still have hiv and still live with it it's unbelievable having gone through um, the very, the pinnacle of the AIDS pandemic and conducting a gay men's chorus during that time uh, that we're here. And I'm so grateful that I'm able to manage my HIV like, like you or anyone manages any other kind of disease. Um, we, uh, we talk a lot about, um, you know, survivor syndrome or why, why did I make it? um and it, it adds responsibility certainly i think most most people my age who did survive feel a, a responsibility to make up a little lost time and make up for those who're not here
0: yeah the the sense of responsibility i it, i mean it weighs so heavy um on me and many in the gay community because you know i think about the films like how to survive a plague um and i remember the first time i watched that And it was a life-changing experience to watch that because most of it was documentary footage that had been strung together. And there are these episodes and epics of our history that oftentimes, I don't want to say they go forgotten, but like the narrative changes over time and people think, oh, we're done with that. And case in point, you have lived and survived and conducted and guided people through two pandemics. I remember talking with some of the members of your chorus previously, you know, during the pandemic, and they said they were having post-traumatic stress every single day as they watched the numbers go up on TV, go up on TV, and go up on TV. And it was bringing them back to a place where they were not only living in fear for themselves, but in fear for all the people they cared and loved about. And and wondering that you might just get the call the next day and say, that person passed, that person passed, that person passed. And so it's a very lived experience for a lot of families. It um, is. And, and, you know, yeah. now it seems that what, here we are in 2023, and, and at times, I sometimes want to stop people and say, have you forgotten? Like, this wasn't that long ago. And it's still right. happening in some cases for, to people that are getting, you know, the numbers yeah. are now going up again in the fall. Um, but, I, but I remember so vividly being affected by that documentary and then wanting to go back and talk to the sort of the, the wise elders of my community and realizing many of them are not there, Tim.
1: Correct. Yeah. Well, I don't know that anyone's ever put... You know sort of a percentage to it of you know take the 70 year olds which i now am and look back and say what percentage of that generation was lost and uh oh it's at least half at least half of my generation were lost during that time there were many times that we thought we wouldn't have a choir Literally, we wouldn't have a choir. So many people in the chorus were sick. And the trajectory was going downward. It was There was no light at the end of the tunnel. One of the things that um, the PTSD of, of COVID that was completely different is all of a sudden, the whole world is paying attention. And they managed to get a vaccine in less than a year. And here we are, uh, 40 years later. And there's no vaccine for HIV. I understand it's unique and takes a lot of trouble, but boy, oh boy, when it was just the gays, and I use air quotes again, when it was just the gays, obviously the government ignored it for a long time. Yeah,
0: and I think that's why it's important that people go back and watch those episodes of history. And I think one of the other unexpected sort of entry points for people was music and if i think about the the, the role that yep. the chorus and the communities played for so many not only just a healing but also an education right this this on ramp to understand these histories that otherwise haven't been told because we've lost so many people and so a question i right. have for you is what was it like to be the you know the artistic director the choral director knowing that you know, you used to be among three hundred voices, but over time, you now ha- literally have the ghosts of these people. That I mean, not only did you know them, you knew their voice. There was a resonance, a frequency. You felt that that interplay, and all of a sudden, that's a gone. What? How does that play out in your your own body as a as a director?
1: Well, it kind of goes to um, you know what we believe about the afterlife. And, uh, you know, that is a very core and essential thing that we have to come to. I think we come to grabs with, especially when we've been surrounded by death and lost so many friends at the age of 30 or the age of 32. We're not, it wasn't losing friends who were 70. It was losing friends who were so young. And, you know, I've dealt with the, the losses throughout my career and life. But um, I've come to this um, conclusion and most recently, and we can get into this. uh, I had two children and um, when I came out and um, my son uh, did not handle it well. They were seven and nine and his mother made sure that he didn't handle it well. My daughter handled it beautifully. She loved her gay dad. She loved the gay choir. They dressed her, they fixed her hair. It was awesome. Um, Five years ago, my daughter died and she was in San Francisco and my best friend for her entire life. And this, um, it's fascinating in that I had lost so many friends and singers. This was a rote loss and death for me, you know, scores of my friends and singers and we we'd sung for hundreds of memorial services uh through the years and then it all changed when it was my daughter and i even more of the last five years believe that they're all still there and so when you ask what does that do to your body um it's not a heavy weight that they're still there. Uh, I think that, you know, they're all around us. And of course, people have written about this much more eloquently than I can put it, but they're in the leaves and the grass. And I live now by a river uh, in Portland, like the rivers outside my window. And it's really important. It was important to me to be near water. Uh, My daughter loved water. And so all of those things, allow me to remember, but not be sad about it. And, um, you know, I, I'll be gone here. Not, I don't know when. <laughs> I think there's some, some kind of uh, desire, you know, it would be great to know when, well, of course, everybody would like to know when, because then you kind of meet out the things that you want to do. If I knew I had a month, I'd be in a big hurry. Um, but, you know, we don't get to know that. But that's kind of the way it happened. I had, of course, grown up in church. And um, the music, music is key in church. And the preachers can go blah, blah, blah. Um, but then when the music starts and um, Daniel Levitin in his book, This Is Your Brain on Music, said you can go to a wedding and people are talking and then the music starts and you cry. And there's this trigger that, that the music softens the heart and opens it. And um, so I had learned that in the church. It's just that in those 35 years that I was in the church, you know, now looking back, um, I just feel like it was used <clears throat> for the wrong end purpose. And that was to, you know, bring people into the fold and and get their tithes and offerings every Sunday. So when I came to uh, and faced AIDS for the first time in 1987 with a chorus that was sick and dying, it was not unusual to me to minister to them. I mean, it was not... A shock. It was just completely different, and most of them um, were had been thrown out of their churches in the eighty in the eighties from their families. All of that underpinning was gone, and so we had to just rely on ourselves, on each other, and on the really the power of music. And um, first thing up uh, in nineteen ninety one. So I'd been there four years. Uh, my assistant conductor wrote. a a piece and uh, a requiem based on the stages of grief as outlined by elizabeth kubler ross and written about by peter mcwilliams in a book how to survive the loss of a love and um, he wrote this beautiful seven movement piece on the stages of grief and we sang it and lo and behold pbs shows up and says we want to do a documentary on this and we some of the singers were like no 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 we don't want to be the aids choir and and we said of course you you can do it so it ended up winning the national emmy for best documentary it's called after goodbye an AIDS story so immediately i was thrust into how does music fit with grief and i narrate the the documentary and it's funny i was much younger and had much more of a texas accent and um But it's a it's a beautiful piece. So immediately um, we the the music fit with the grief. And so we had then created this. And as it turns out, the composer, once PBS said they wanted to film this, came out as having full blown AIDS. And we had no idea. And so he um, said, I've this is actually I wrote my own requiem. So PBS filmed for a year and. He died within that year and they filmed the composer, uh, on his deathbed, literally. So it's quite powerful and it's been around, um, obviously for all those years and it's still, it's still very, very powerful. So th- the use of music, um, was just key to what was going on. And it has been, it's set a precedent for my career that was then to follow, um, And and I can tell you more about that as you would like, but the commissioning of music uh, became something that was really important. New music, uh, basically for men's choruses, which we don't call men's choruses anymore. We call them TTBB choruses, which is tenor, tenor, bass, bass. Mm -hmm. um, Because we have women and and trans singers. And Mm -hmm. so uh, there's, it's, we all grew up with women's choruses and men's choruses and now we don't use those terms anymore. That's a whole nother podcast.
0: Well, yeah, for sure. Um, (laughs) And, and I'm also curious, um, you know, I don't have children of my own, but I come from a very large family. My, my husband comes from a very large family as well. And we've gone through the loss of, of young people. And when, when things are out of order, right. As a parent, you know, you losing a child, from from what I understand and people say, there's, there's really nothing that, that matches that level of heartbreak, um, that you, that you live with every day. So I'm, I'm curious, how, how are you, how has it been for you? Um, have you, have you met with other parents who have, who have lost children as well? Because I know that there's this very communal healing that happens, um, as I understand it with, with people who have lost children?
1: Right off the bat, I was um, with Kaiser Permanente. And uh, so I immediately sought counseling and therapy. And they're strong believers for a lot of reasons, but they're strong believers in group therapy. And so I have uh, met with some groups. I've been not a part of the sober community, but in the middle of it for these 35 years. Um, obviously the sober community is very near and dear to the LGBTQ community. There's a lot of crossover. So I understand the, the concept and I understand the amazing results of meeting in a group and telling your story. I, uh, am able to tell my story a lot. (laughs) Uh, I get to, to, um, so it's not like I'm holding this in. Obviously, yeah. I told you within the first seven minutes of this podcast because it's a, such a part of me. Uh, so I've been in a lot of um, individual therapy, a little bit of group therapy. Uh, so to your to your question, of course, I've talked with people who've lost children. Uh, it is it's a bit of a club because it's mm-hmm. it's rare. And, um, you know, what you said about, uh, about it being one of the things you can't grasp, you just can't grasp the out of orderness of it. Um, yeah, I, I will never be over it. I think that's what most parents who lose a child simply say, I will never get over this. And, um, it comes up all the time and, you know, grief is that way. Grief is that surprise. (laughs) Didn't know that was going to happen. And um, so, yeah, there are a lot of tears. I'm grateful now to be quasi-retired because I have time and uh, to work on myself and to look back. And uh, she had she left me with a beautiful granddaughter in San Francisco, and uh, I get to see her often and I have three other granddaughters, I have four granddaughters. And um, so, you know, she does live on in the granddaughter, and I I get to see her. But um, boy, you lose a best friend and a child, and no, there's no getting over that.
0: Yeah, no, I appreciate you. I appreciate you walking us through that. Um, Because it is, it is. um, I think it's something that more people carry than many people realize. Um, and, And it is a It is a different kind of heartbreak from my understanding so um i appreciate you you sharing that um i I would love to talk a little bit about i think there was a performance that you directed that i attended years ago and you can correct me obviously we didn't know each other then but i want to rewind back to the day that doma was struck down um yes you remember this so kidding (laughs) Uh,
1: If I, you know, if I were God or if I were the king of the universe, I could not have planned this better. I mean, it was really just too much. (laughs) Um, I mean, how do you, you, well, you can't plan this kind of thing. So um, when we, the chorus was coming up on its 35th anniversary. And for people that don't know, the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus was the first gay chorus to put the G word or sexual orientation in its name in 1978. And uh, the chorus then, the first performance of the chorus after four weeks was at Harvey Milk's memorial at his candlelight memorial. And so the chorus never had a chance to meet Harvey Milk because the chorus formed in four weeks later, Harvey Milk was assassinated. He didn't know that it was happening. But the timing obviously was terrible. But uh, so the chorus, because of that event, um, have been just connected with Harvey Milk since the very beginning. And um, so at 35, we decided we would uh, commission a huge work, full orchestra chorus on the life of Harvey Milk and called I Am Harvey Milk. And it was this huge production. And it was opening on Wednesday night, June, whatever that date was, that was the first performance. And lo and behold, the Supreme Court uh, made its ruling that morning. And I was at City Hall. We knew it was coming down. We didn't know what it was going to be, of course. And there were huge screens set up in City Hall and it was insane. So the whole day was crazy. And that night um, we had A lot of celebrities as well, gay gay celebrities. Cleve Jones gave an introduction. Um, We had, um, oh, geez, now I'm I'm blanking. Um, The filmmakers from Milk were there. And um, so they all kind of spoke at the first, and it was electric. I mean, you know, people could walk out on stage and they didn't know who they were and they didn't say a word. And it was like, oh, just because people walked. It was, insane and uh the excitement of that moment and then the curtain went up for i'm harvey milk and like i said you can't plan that you can't and it it kept going you know through that whole weekend uh Mm because we did four more shows and every every night or every show more people would show up who'd come to town come to san francisco to celebrate and
0: yeah I can't believe you were there. That's awesome. So I was there that first night and let me tell you how my day was. So the beautiful thing about this, Tim, is that you and I were dancing in the same space that night. We didn't know each other then, but to your point around the electricity and the life changing moments of what that was, I'm so glad I was there that that night. You can't plan these things. And let me tell you what my my day was like that day. So my alma mater, Johns Hopkins University, I had started or restarted, I would probably say, the Pride Alumni Group, right? I'd been working on that, building that community, and realizing, hey, there's a lot of LGBTQIA alumni around the world, and they've never actually seen the letters J H U, standing for Johns Hopkins University, and LGBTQIA in the same sentence ever. And so I started this, you know, community and had been working on it grassroots. It got to a point where Johns Hopkins said to me, hey, we'd actually like to send you out to San Francisco to go meet with some alumni and constituents. And I said, great. So, you know, we plan it for whenever. We had no idea about the ruling of the Supreme Court was going to land on that morning, as you said. So I'm on a Virgin America flight. This is how long ago this was. Virgin America flight from Dulles, I believe, or DCA to San Francisco. And on Virgin America at the time, Um you had direct TV, but it only had so many channels, right? And we took off and we knew because we were in Washington, DC, and the people that are in DC knew that the ruling was going to happen that morning. They had at least announced that it Mm -hmm. was going to happen. Oh yeah. We're in flight and people are all scanning the channels for to, to to get some, I don't know, C SPAN or something, right? And none of them are on there. So People on the plane asked the flight attendant to go up to the pilot to ask if he can call down to find out what the ruling was. What? Yes. So we are in midair and he says, I'm going to get updates. And as we are getting ready to descend, he comes on and he says, "Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I just wanted to make an announcement that the Supreme Court just struck down the Defense of Marriage Act and the entire plane erupted in applause. Oh my God. I, I still have chills thinking yeah. about it, right? <laughs> so, so we land in San Francisco. People are just ecstatic, and off I go into the city to get ready to host my event later that that day uh, in the Castro. And the whole city is a buzz, completely a buzz. And there mm-hmm. was an, a spontaneous street party that broke out in the Castro. I met people. I hung out with people. We were celebrating. And I had a friend who, uh, lived in San Francisco. She knew I was coming to visit and she secretly got me tickets to the Harvey milk show. Now, not knowing again, she didn't know that this was going to happen on this day. So I have my event. We go to the Harvey milk concert, have the incredible, as you said, you know, um, Cleve Jones and others were like there. And, uh, it, you know, all those people were, were celebrating. And then she said to me afterwards, Hey, let's go to a bar and let's continue to celebrate. And I said, great. Cause everything is just ecstatic and electric. And, and we walk in this bar and she's like, isn't this great? History's made. And, and, um, I'm looking around to see where we can stand. And I see this profile of a very handsome man. And I'm like, Whoa, who's that? And I, that person turns around and it's my husband. Well, my friend had secretly invited my husband what? to join, to come out. I didn't know he was even flying out to join and surprise me oh, wow. that, that evening. And, and again, none of us knew this was going to happen with Supreme yeah. Court ruling. None of us knew. She just wanted him to be out there to support me and she hadn't seen him in a while. So all of that happened on the same wow. day. I, when you say you can't plan it, you absolutely cannot plan That's it, but- Long way to say that was an incredible day and evening for me, and thank you for making it so.
1: Thank you, and your and your listeners can find that can find I'm Harvey Milk on Spotify, and you it's spectacular music. The recording is amazing.
0: It really, really is, and and I think back to you know even said 1978, right? Was when is when it was formed. I was born in 78, and I remember watching you know the film about Harvey Milk and walking by that first. Place that office right, right on the camera shop. Uh, yeah. yeah, thank you. Yeah, the camera shop on, in the Castro. And realizing that weekend, um, how many intersections there were in terms of, you know, commonalities, and if people had been able to play out their life, right, how different the world would be. Mm-hmm. Not only those who were taken from us in 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 Harvey Milk's case, but those that uh, that passed in you know, as during the AIDS crisis. And and so it all kind of goes full circle back to that sense of, of wisdom lost, but also us seizing, seizing the moments, right? Like living yeah. in these moments. And to me, music is always a part of that. Like, I can't, I can't separate these moments that have changed my life without this, without a soundtrack. Right being involved
1: in it. 100%. We, we all do that. We all do that through through life. And, and you know, if I had anything to say to, um, and I, I'm not even sure it needs to be said, but uh, anyone who's going through a, a, a rough patch or having a, a bad day, music will fix that. I mean, well, let me say this. That's naive. It doesn't fix your rough patch, but it will certainly help you get through it so much better the 1978 thing uh, for most people like you i was born on in 78 that's hilarious um <clears throat> but the the gay the gay movement you know came out of the compton cafeteria riots in san francisco which i keep saying hi you know we beat stonewall by a couple of years but um and then stonewall and then from what i understand because i was a good southern baptist boy i I was not celebrating pride, but you know, the whole thing was just um, exciting and party. And now, you know, we can be out ish and um, twin peaks, the bar in San Francisco took the black paint off of its windows and all that wonderful stuff. And so the gay choral movement, which San Francisco began in 78 was party. Let's party, let's sing and have fun. And then, you know, on the day in 1981, the the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus left on a national tour. They went to nine cities in 1981. This is insane. It's, um, it's hard to even imagine, but they were gone two weeks. They went to nine cities. And on the day they left, the San Francisco Chronicle full page, Gay choir goes into the, you know, takes the nation. And in the corner, in the bottom corner is a little article that says New York Times has identified 41 men who have a mysterious cancer. So mm-hmm. the subtext was this whole page about the chorus going on tour, but there is this mysterious cancer and you know it wasn't long until that article took many more full pages than mm-hmm. than the chorus. So the the gay choral movement uh, sobered up really fast. It was no longer a party Not at all and uh, became healers and singing at memorial services and taking care of each other and t- doing and so we grew up we matured and then when uh you know after the cocktail and then finally uh, when hiv was manageable and there were no longer full-blown aids we don't have that really anymore then the gay choral movement was like okay what do we do now Mm -hmm. (laughs) we've partied and then we've done the complete opposite of taking care. And that's when we turned to social justice um, Mm -hmm. and leading the fight all across the country. And I'm really proud of, there are, for, for your listeners, there are 200 gay and lesbian choruses in North America. And I was just in Tijuana for the inaugural concert of the Tijuana gay men's chorus. yes i went to um i was lucky enough to go to taiwan for the southeast asia gay choral convention and when you when you're in an audience and they say and now uh, next up is the lesbian chorus from seoul you go what say say what I mean, it's so wonderful Um, and the gay choral movement has, you know, sort of been at the forefront. It's a, it's a thing that people can understand people outside of our community, they understand choir and singing. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, what Seoul Korea has a lesbian choir? Sure. Yeah, they do. It's, um, so that's been really exciting. And I I get to still be a part of the big uh, gay choral movement even though I don't have my own chorus anymore.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, the, you know, when you've been around the world and you've sung to the world and you've directed people whose voices have, you know, helped, it's almost like you have um, an imprint everywhere, I imagine. Um, And you get to call a lot of places home. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned the, you know, many, many choruses around the country. I have obviously a lot of friends from the DC chorus that still sing in the DC chorus. And, um, went to many of their performances. Uh, as a veteran, I remember how powerful it was to experience the fall of you know, Don't Ask, Don't Tell and celebrating that through the Gay Men's Chorus as well. And that intersection was really powerful for me. And a few of those veterans and choral members used to say to me, you know, Bill, um, if you ever have the opportunity to go to one of these conventions or conferences where all the chorals come together, right, and they compete and they sing and they... They said you should because it's like a reality show inside itself. And so I'm curious from your standpoint, what were those like? Because I've heard the stories. Well,
1: <laughs> I'm having a conversation with the, the the heads of the DC Chorus today at noon. Okay. Um, they're my dear friends. Um, so the Gala Choral Festival, the, the movement, obviously, Gay Men's Chorus San Francisco started in 78, and and quickly it moved, and others began uh, starting choruses. And in 1984, they had kind of a a West Coast group where they, they came together, and then it started, then it moved to New York, and then Seattle in 1989. So they decided then we would do it every four years because it's a big deal and a lot of travel and a lot of money. So we would do it every four years. And, um, so every four years it's called gala festival and all of the gay choirs, um, lesbian choirs, trans choirs. Now choirs from around the world. We've, we've had, uh, a lot of choruses from around the world, the Beijing queer choir. That's what it's called. The Beijing queer choir came to the last festival and the, uh, the pink singers from Berlin. So they all come, all right? So there. the next one will be in Minneapolis. Unfortunately, there was to be one in 2020, and everybody was ready when in March it had to be canceled. So it will have been eight years between festivals this time, and just watch out because it's going to be, yeah, a lot. Everything that it was is going to be just exponentially bigger. But there will be about... 7000 maybe 8000 lgbtqi singers and the fun part is you know we all love singing and we all love being different and quirky and crazy and we will take over poor minneapolis and uh bless their hearts but we have every performance venue in the city so downtown is basically shut down with 8,000 people in Minneapolis, the gays and um, about 170 performances in five days. So they go three at a time and there are three. So you can't see all of them because there's no way. And it is, I, I just can't even tell you like every street corner becomes a gay bar. It's fantastic. And to be with people that, that do what you do and love what you do. And we all share this whole commonality, not just of being LGBTQ, but of loving singing. And it's unbelievable. It's, it's just the most, one of the most empowering things I've ever done. And I've been to all of them since
0: 1989. So, wow. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm going to put in a request that the next one you said is in Minneapolis. is in 2024. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Next summer. Okay. So I'm going to put in a request. I think there would be an amazing video drone shot. I'm sure it could be done where as many people reenact the Mary Tyler Moore, yes. throw the hat in the air and do the I'm going to make it after all.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. OK, I'll, I'll I'm put, sure
0: that'll be sung. They'll sing that song. Somebody will oh, sing yeah. that song. Oh,
1: absolutely. Yeah.
0: If not um, the Twin Cities
1: Gay Men's Chorus, I'm sure will. But
0: yeah. But I just I, it could just be an amazing you know up there with like when people graduate, they throw their cap, yeah, sure. right, but we all love some mary Tyler more um yes, I so to reenact that
1: since you since you said that um yeah it's it's gonna be great, I was gonna go yeah. off on some tangent, but I won't
0: no worries um. Another question I have for you is because you've directed so much and you've probably sung so much yourself, you're also a you know trained singer and musician. Was there ever a performance that you would have loved to introduce a piece of music to that that didn't happen right for example like do you do you have a list of things in your head that you, as a director, an artistic director say, "Oh, I'd love it if the chorus did this or is it is it is it much more of a um, collaborative experience? Did they bring stuff to you? Do you bring stuff to them? How is it, how is that um, for lack of a better term, mandala of music put together?
1: Well, <clears throat> when you, when you conduct a, a huge chorus and San Francisco is, is just an amazing chorus and an amazing, you know, iconic thing. The chorus had 300 singers and, um, we just bought a building a four-story building in san francisco and have uh, now created the national queer arts center at our building so it's this sort of huge thing that people can't even fathom Uh, i can't fathom it and i was the director (laughs) because it just kind of you know happened has happened all over these years so uh, when you have 300 gays in a room there are 600 opinions and and they change you know, we take a break and then people swap opinions. And so, uh, boy, it's, it's a tight wire and I did it for 35 years. Can you imagine? Um, so you have to allow, not have to, that's not nice, uh, to say you have to, but you have to allow everybody to have a voice. Mm -hmm. So, um, around in the springtime of next season, the artistic team and, volunteer team sits around and goes okay what do we want to sing next year not what pieces do we want to sing but what are the big themes like we want to do a theme of blah blah or uh you know what should we do at the holidays or you know shall we do uh, we did the brits that the brits are coming which was amazing so just kind of pick things like out of the the air or other the other choruses around the country of sung. because hello you know there are 200 other choruses doing the same thing about the same time. And so we picked three themes for the three big shows or, or four, and then send it out to all 300.
0: Wow. So really?
1: The themes go to your, you know, make me a mixtape. And, uh... <laughs> yes,
0: I used to love making mixtapes tape yes.
1: and come back with us. Uh, you got, a, you got a month to mm-hmm. send it. However, um, you can't just write an email and say, I, rem- I remember this song one time that was about love, and I think we should sing it. None of that. we got to have more information. And mm-hmm. so then we um, have a music input committee made of about 25 singers of, of, of multi-generations, of diverse. And, and so we would meet every late spring, May or June, and go through all this music. It's the most fun thing ever in the whole world.
0: I would love that. Are you kidding me? Like, how do I sign up to be on that committee?
1: So much fun, and there's a ballot at the end of the day, and we listen, we listen, and we play, and we sing some of it, and uh, and then they vote, and it's a secret uh, ballot because I choose whatever I want, you know. Once the votes are in, Uh, yeah. However, power. Well, they you know they they rank them one to five uh, Mm -hmm. as like do you want to sing this? It's a one, you have to sing this. It's a one and five. I hope I never hear that song again. So that's how they rank them. And uh, I will say that, you know, the ones I'm like, okay, we're doing those because obviously people love them and we take the ones and twos basically. And from three down, it's a negotiation. And I don't know Mm -hmm. that I've ever sung a five. So that's how it goes. So yeah, yeah, it's uh, fascinating. People have no idea, but at the very outset, Everybody gets to have their, their words. Uh, you know, I, all the time, especially now that I'm retired hear here things. And I'm like, Oh, I wish I had a choir. I want to sing. Mm-hmm. That. And um, next summer, it's funny because when you have 170 performances of next summer in a five day period, you pretty much can hear all the music you need for the next four years. Right, it's just we didn't have one the last time, so we were all yeah. scrambling. But literally, you could just sit there with a pad, and pencil, or an iPad and the stylus, um, and just make lists. I want to yeah. sing that. So it's it's sort of the way that we that's how we come up with music yeah. on on the on many of the choruses, but especially San Francisco, as I mentioned early on, uh, we commissioned a lot of work. Uh, yeah. from amazing composers the i'm harvey milk was was a huge one that was andrew lippa the broadway composer who wrote adam's family and wild party and this most recently we actually we have had Stephen schwartz as mm-hmm. our bestie and he's oh, yeah. a lot for us and become a dear friend of the chorus but uh, this my my final spring concert We were actually given a piece by Stephen Sondheim one month before he died. So uh, a year, uh, about a year before he died, uh, Andrew Lippa and Stephen Schwartz, of course, called uh, Stephen Sondheim and said, would you write something for the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus? And he said, I would, but I'm not writing anymore. Like, Mm -hmm. no, I'm just not. I don't have to. Duh! He didn't. Of course, nobody knew that he was near uh, his end. But uh, so he said, "But I have this song that's never been sung. That's been sung one time ever in the whole world. And I would give that give it to the Gay Men's Chorus for them to turn into, uh, like we have it orchestrated, turn into a, a TTBB, as we say, a male." Uh, it's not a male chorus, into a TTBB chorus. It's hard because people don't understand TTBB, tenor, tenor, bass, bass. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a a difficult transition that we have going on. Uh, We certainly have, just to throw this little grenade out, um, it's the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus. Mm -hmm. But we have, we now anyone, it's open to anyone, it's open to cisgender women cisgender mm-hmm. women to trans so you know of course it begs the will you change the name and right. that's all gonna be you know i'm so glad i was not part of we were i was part of the discussion because people right. were talking about what do we do about that anyway um we were we were talking about the fact that Stephen Sondheim air quotes wrote a piece, but we were the, we get a world premiere of a Stephen Sondheim piece three months after he died.
0: Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting when you talk about Steven Schwartz and, you know, obviously we all have our own soundtracks that we point back to. Um, And for me, uh, you know, a dear friend of mine years ago, um, I was over at his house. He gave me a CD. He said, I want you to play this in your car. And then I want you to call me right afterwards. And the CD was the soundtrack to Wicked. Of course. And um, I didn't know what it was, and yeah. I put it in. And um, he told me specifically to to play the song for good. Of and course. And I made it one exit down the freeway, pulled into a, a rest stop, called him up crying, and said, "I hate you and I love you." Yeah. Um, and that that soundtrack in itself, um, and I didn't see I didn't see the show for another. Uh, maybe 10 years because the soundtrack was my soundtrack of my coming out. Like it, it had all the words that I couldn't say in the world Um, as a military officer. And certainly as one of six kids raised Irish Roman Catholic, right? Like um, not quite the Southern Baptist, but you know, we're in the running. Same guilt, Um, same guilt, same shame. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that was such a paramount soundtrack for me um and so years later you know to be able to take uh the next generation nieces nephews friends of family to go see wicked uh remains a very emotional experience for me in in so many ways um and i'm grateful i'm grateful that you know when we think about choral movements and musicals and the collection of voices, this is how we heal. This is how we get through um, the pain.
1: Okay, now I'm going to blow your mind. At Harvey Milk's memorial, or Candlelight Vigil, uh, that Candlelight Vigil, the the Gay Men's Chorus was down front. Diane Feinstein knew there was a Gay Men's Chorus. She invited them down, said, you all have to sing. They knew one song. They sang it. Holly Near, who is a sort of a John Baez singer-songwriter was on her way, and a, a, a huge uh, singer-songwriter in that, those days, on her way, she wrote a song on a napkin. She turns around, she teaches it to the gay men's chorus and turns around and sings it for the 10,000 people at the Candlelight Vigil. And it's called Singing for Our Lives. We are a gentle, angry people. It would kill you. Holly Near ran into Stephen Schwartz on a vacation in Hawaii, and she was reading this book, what's the book that Wicked came from? It was the book that Wicked came from.
0: Oh, yeah, the the Gregory Maguire book. Yes,
1: and Mm -hmm. um, Stephen Schwartz says, what are you reading? She goes, I'm just about to finish it. You want to read it? And she hands him the book to Stephen Schwartz. He reads the book, decides he'd like to. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Because he kind of stopped writing for a little bit, and he was like, I could write this. So when I got here, uh, someone said, I have a contact for Stephen Schwartz. Would you like for him to sing on a concert? And I was like, duh. So I literally called Stephen Schwartz and said, would you sing with the Gay Men's Chorus? And he'd never sung with a Gay Men's Chorus. And he said, I'll sing under one one, um, circumstance. And that is that you allow me to write something for the Gay Men's Chorus. And I went, what? Wow. Um, Okay. He says, "Um, I have been so moved by the It Gets Better project. And mm-hmm. I want to write something based on It Gets Better. And I said, well, I know Dan Savage, so let me put you and Dan Savage together. So I write Dan Savage an email that says, Stephen Schwartz is looking for you. Of course, because he gets millions of emails. Oh, of course he does, yeah. Dan Savage. He immediately writes back and he goes, what? And I said, he wants this. So Dan Savage got with Stephen Schwartz and said, I'm going to open the vaults to you. You can have any text, anything written. Here, go, and Stephen went and wrote this piece called "Testimony," and uh, people listening, go to the YouTube San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus "Testimony," and it will be the it'll be the next most moving piece you ever see after "For Good," okay. and um, then I'll just do the name drop. I'm gonna drop drop it right here. It was enormous and enormous in Stephen's life because he'd never written any, he's written a lot of stuff that's kind of gay, like most everything he's written, but he'd never written anything about, this is about teen suicide and it's about coping. And the final lines are as powerful as for good. I can't wait till you watch the end of Testament. Wow. You're, you're just going to die. It's so beautiful. I'll tell you what there is in a minute. So he was so moved by it that I'm sitting in a In an airport bar, the night of the Tonys, and I was just sick about missing the Tonys because but I was going to be on a flight, and I start getting texts. Stephen Schwartz just thanked you on the Tonys. And what? Shut up! Shut up! You people, stop pranking me! And um, in his speech, when he got his uh, uh, life achievement award, he said, "I have three people to thank that have changed my career. One is Tim Seelig." No way. Well, so, (laughs) oh, I have it. I can prove it. I've got the clip. Um, It was a moment for Steven when he became an activist, an LGBTQ activist, and had not been prior to that at all. And this whole thing, I don't know why he thanked me. He could have thanked Dan Savage or... And it just happened that he thanked me because I was that little conduit.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: a year ago, I retired, and um, from the San Francisco Gay Chorus, and we had our huge gala in the spring, and surprise, um, that it was really a, a appreciate Temp evening uh, at the Fairmont Hotel, it was beautiful, and surprise, a small group from the chorus had learned. For good. I didn't know they'd learned it. And guess who walks out and plays for them?
0: Who Ooh. accompanied them? No, he did not. He did. Oh. Huh.
1: <laughs> yes, he did. Stephen Schwartz accompanied the, to say to me.
0: Oh, my word. I would have, good... I would have lost it. I would have been on the floor. Like, okay, he would
1: well. have had to just... The truth yeah. is I lost it and my two, two of my granddaughters were there and they oh. came and sat in my lap while I wept. Yeah. So there you go. There's, I said, so I'm going to blow your mind from Holly near all the way.
0: <laughs> my mind is blown. That is, that is amazing. Um, I can't wait to go back find all these clips and share them yeah. with people. Cause this is, this is pretty incredible. You've just given me like chills seven times over that whole Good. story. Good. <laughs> um, I know we're almost to time, so I wanted to bring it back to Texas, actually. Um, back to near Fort Worth. Uh you um,
1: have to? Well,
0: kidding. I mean. No. So I, I actually lived in Texas when I was a kid for about seven years. Um, but that's mm-hmm. not what I wanted to bring it back to. I want to bring it back to that area because one of my favorite singers of all time uh, recently came out within the past five years. His name is Tevin Campbell. He's from Waxahachie, Texas. Um, Waxahachie. Well, well. Excuse me, hatchie. Please.
1: <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> I have no idea why it would be hatchie,
0: but. I stand corrected. Waxahachie, Texas. I always said Waxy, but here you go. I'm, I'm, yeah. being, I'm being corrected by a, a native. Uh-huh. Um, I've always been curious how powerful it would be to have Tevin Campbell sing alongside one of the gay men's chorus in the United States. I'm just putting that out there. No, we're just going to let that be. We're just going to let that be. And if that happens, I would die to see that. It can happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I don't even know. I do not know who it is. What style of music is it?
0: So he he started off, he was a child star in the early 90s. um, And it would be R&B Soul. Um, You would definitely, I'll send you a couple of links after this. You'll definitely recognize, um, if you know the song, Can We Talk? Oh, yeah. Um yeah. So he yeah. sang Can We Talk? Yeah. He was also uh one of the singers of the ninety-two Olympics, if I'm doing that right. Yes. He sang a song called One Song, which was on his debut album and it was featured in the ninety-two Olympics as well. Wow. Um anyway, he's had a he's had a really interesting career, but you'll appreciate this. My first CD I ever bought was Stephen Campbell's uh debut album. Um, only because the cassette tape I had had been put through the Walkman so many times <laughs> that you couldn't tell what the tape was, right? All of the text had worn off it. Nice. Um, and he has remained my favorite singer of all time, uh, for years and years. He also starred in the Broadway version of, or the, the, uh, redo of Hairspray. So, <laughs> so he was, he was, um, recently in, in that as well. We can get
1: him singing with the gay chorus.
0: That would be amazing. We're just we going to manifest that. Yeah, we can do that. Um, sure. So yeah, so full circle back to Texas. Tevin Campbell, walks Waxahachie, Texas. Waxahachie. Did you ever say Waxahachie to him? I've never said that to him. No, I've oh, never talked just, to him. I've never met he him. He was just too kind
1: to, to correct you. I'm not.
0: No, well, I mean, I never had the opportunity to, but maybe I, I will. We have, it-
1: we have M-E-X-I-A, Majeya.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: yeah i mean we have a lot well yeah we have a lot of texana
0: that you know you would never know how
1: to pronounce it
0: but right now you know waxahachie now i know waxahachie i've been pronouncing it wrong all these years since since 1991 hey we can always learn um (laughs) this was an amazing conversation i i david was right when he knew we were gonna hit it off oh good
1: (laughs) yes he was right for sure
0: Thank you so much. And if I ever get the opportunity, I mean, I'm only up in Seattle. You're down in Portland. So um, it I would be great. Here to, too. Yeah, it'd be great. Um, there's And I, and there's so many people that you probably know in the DC chorus that I know. And so the worlds are uh, pretty small. But thank you so much for sharing. You're so welcome. And bringing a lot of laughter and emotion and the holding of grief and okay. helping people heal. I really appreciate Thanks. it. Thanks so much. Yeah, you bet.